but before we go much further, I want to say good evening, Gina. How are you? Good evening. It's good to hear you all. And I apologize for being a bit late. I had a breaking news story that had absolutely nothing to do with this topic. So I'm here now. So good to be with you all. And as always, Slava Ukraini. Slava. So as we get started tonight, um, Nancy has put up into the nest her mega thread, as she prefers to call it. Um, and uh, it is the second in the nest. The first in the nest is uh, oh, is our uh, note that we have in there about our current fundraiser, which is for demining. And uh, so please feel free to check that out, too. Um, mines are a huge problem in Ukraine, as you hear us talk about on a regular basis. And uh, we are working to raise some funds to be able to send demining equipment to Ukraine. All right. So before we get started, this... Um, this specific report, which there should be a link to it in uh, Nancy's thread up in the nest, second tweet in there. Um, it there's yes, it is right there. There is a. Um, are you looking at the wrong? What? Okay. Well, oh, there it is. I, ha- I have two, and there's the last one. I figured it out. I figured it out. I figured it out. Yes. Uh, there is a link to the report that we're talking about up in the nest. Um, this does uh, have some details uh, regarding sexual violence and torture and other kinds of uh, violence within it. So, Gina, I always seem to ask you because you do it so well. Would you like to do our disclaimer, please? Absolutely. And you're very kind. But above all, we want you to feel uh, not overwhelmed or triggered. And I always say I'm very open about this as a survivor of sexual assault myself. I know how triggering this material can be at times, even when you think that it's not going to hit you or that your concern for Ukraine is, you know, going to help you overcome a moment when you feel triggered. Sometimes it doesn't always work that way. And we need you strong for yourself and for Ukraine. So if you find that any of this material does make you uh, very uncomfortable or you know, it's overwhelming, feel free to step back and take a deep breath. As I said, we need you strong. We need you to take care of yourself. And if you need more resources for that in the United States, you can always call 911 or in your country, whatever your local emergency number is. If you are in immediate distress, if you feel overwhelmed or you feel like you might hurt yourself, if you can't call your emergency numbers then call a loved one and let them know that you're feeling overwhelmed In the United States, if you are feeling suicidal, and unfortunately reports of such horrific atrocities can, even if you haven't had prior experience of trauma, make you feel so overwhelmed and so helpless. And life is good and valuable, and every one of us deserves to live it. So we need you here. If you feel suicidal in the United States, you can call the National Suicide Hotline at 988. You can also text that number to chat and someone will respond to you and, and help you through that moment and connect you with resources. Also, if you feel particularly that you need to address whatever sexual trauma that you're feeling in hearing this material, if you are in a moment of crisis, you can always call the National Sexual Assault Hotline. That is 1-800-656-4673. And again, you can call or chat. That number again is 1-800-656-4673. 
In Canada, you can find a number of resources at the website mentalhealthfoundation.ca. In English, you can text the word HOPE, the number 4, Ukraine, to 393939. In Ukrainian, you can text the word in Ukrainian, Ukraina, to 1-855-450-2266. You can text the Russian spelling of Ukraine to that same number, which again is 1-855-450-2266. And you can text in French, Espoir, E-S-P-O-I-R, the number four, and Ukraine, to 1-855-450-2266, Espoir for Ukraine. And someone will connect with you so that you can work through that moment and be connected with resources. And that is what we like to offer at the top of our genocide discussions. And if anyone out there has additional resources they think would be helpful, please send them to Prince or Nancy, and we will include them in our list. If we can make this list as comprehensive as possible, it helps us all to stay safe and to stay well. Yes, it does. And uh, that is that is the important thing here. We want to be educated, but we want to stay safe and we want to stay well. And, uh, and you know, that's I, I tend to dive in with with both feet, but I have uh, I have I also have my things that I do that some people may find odd that really um, gives me a bit of a gives me a bit of a a nice little break and a nice refresher. And uh, believe it or not, I listen to really old old gospel hymn kind of music that I was raised with pretty much up until I start co-hosting every night. Um, I usually have to mute the song and speak. Um, and, and it's just something I do. I uh, think the Chuck Wagon game gang. Um, and if you know who they are, uh, congratulations. Cause I don't know how many people do. Um, anyway, <laughs> find, find something that makes you happy and soothes your soul. And, uh, and, and take some time to do that in and among all of the, um, really hard stuff that we see and we hear about when it comes to uh, what we talk about every day about Ukraine and what we are also also seeing um, that is happening in Israel, um, because that is adding another layer on top of it um, for a lot for for I think a lot of people. Um, I think if you're on Twitter, you can't avoid it. I know that uh, a lot of my accounts that I follow for Ukraine are also posting stuff about Israel. So anyway, um, so diving into this document, this this first document is, like I said, um, is the Independent International Commission on of Inquiry on Ukraine. Um, and uh, it is something that is being uh, given to the Secretary General to be presented to um, the General Assembly. Oh, Gina. Oh, good Lord. Look at them both popping their hands up on me. Gina was first. Go ahead, Nia. Go ahead. <laughs> I was just going to say um, before we, well, once we open this up, maybe as a preface to it, I've got a, kind of an FAQ page that the UN offered on this particular commission. And I don't know that all of these items were actually specified in this report. I think this report kind of presumes a bit of knowledge from that. So when you're ready to go there, this would kind of open it up. And then there are some... Um, there are three types of law, three bodies of law that the commission applies to this. And I have some quick 
overviews of those three, international humanitarian law, international human rights law, and international criminal law. And then there's also a standard of proof issue. So whenever you're ready, I have those documents pulled up and it will give some framework to what we're about to read. Yeah, that'll be perfect, Gina. If you go through the framework and then the piece that I have is um, a press Q&A that was done um, by the heads of this commission with the press on September 26th after they gave a verbal report to the UN um, before this report was actually written or was actually published to the UN site. So I think from a timing perspective, that'll be good. And then we dive into the document itself. So perfect. All righty then. Take it away, Gina. Thank you. Sure, no problem. And I want to thank Dee and Leo, because actually, as they were talking, I was thinking, oh, this is a perfect segue to going into some of the law here. So, um, so nice, nice setup there. I appreciate it. So, uh, you know, as Prince said, that this is the, this current report that we're looking at, which is not yet available online. Am I correct, Prince? It is available online. It is available online. Okay. Yes, it is the. Where else would I have gotten it? I'm sorry. That's, you know what? I, now that I'm thinking of it, yes, you sent me the link to this. I'm looking at a hard copy yeah. now. Yeah. So. Yeah. And the. And the link is in. It's the last um, post in the thread that I currently have in the nest. And right now, this was the October 19th advanced unedited version. So it basically is the rough cut of the document. Um, and I'm sure that there will be negotiations on what ends up in the final version. So right now, this is an advanced copy. However, it is on the United Nations website. Perfect. Perfect. All right. Yes. And yeah, I just, you know, you, you say I, I had a secret way to get that. That would have been awesome. But no, I don't. But see, this is this is how I think of you, Prince, because I know that you do have these secret ways of getting things. <laughs> you have no clue. Anyway. You're extremely connected. <laughs> but um, just to start at the top, and this is from a wonderful FAQ page on the commission. If you go to the ohchr.org website, you will see the different commissions and you can drill down and, and get information on these various independent international commissions of inquiry. For this one, they've also included a frequently asked questions page. And again, to back it up, this all started on March 4th of 2022, which obviously was just a few days after Russia launched its full-scale invasion of Ukraine. This war, of course, started back in 2014, but the full-scale invasion was in February 2022. And days later, the UN's Human Rights Council adopted a resolution, 49-1, on the situation of human rights in Ukraine stemming from the Russian aggression. And they established this commission of inquiry through that resolution. And this sounds a little dry, but I think it is important for us to actually as we go through these materials, learn some of the, you know, the international law, what's applying here? What are we talking about? We, we ran into this before when we were talking about, um, you know, we looked at the genocide convention and we obviously saw that you have to prove intent, but intent, when you break it open as a layperson, if you're not an international lawyer, which I am not, I'm a journalist. So I just ask a lot of questions. That's pretty much all I can really do is ask a lot of questions and write what I find from the people I ask those questions of. But when, when we break this open more, we gain a greater understanding of 
what is the law? What are we talking about? What, how are these terms defined? And it can clear up a lot of misconceptions that we might have in using these words in common language. Obviously, there's a legal definition for intent in various legal settings and in various cultures. And then there's an everyday term of that. So we tend to use words and languages and concepts that, that really can shift almost imperceptibly if we're not careful. So it, it helps to level set a lot of expectations here. So that was my little sidebar on definitions and the importance thereof. But this commission of inquiry was established through the Human Rights Council. And then that had one year and it was renewed on April 4th of this year of 2023. They renewed it for another year. And then they requested this, this update that, um, you know, was part of this report. So in terms of the scope, and this is what the FAQ talks about, you know, what were they, what were they looking at? Well, the material scope was to look at all alleged violations and abuses of human rights and violations of international humanitarian law and related crimes in the context of the aggression against Ukraine by the Russian Federation and to establish the facts, circumstances, and root causes of any such violations and abuses. So the commission was able to decide the themes, the incidents, the alleged violations that would receive a particular focus based on objective criteria and taking into account, and this is important because you hear this in the report, the time and resources available to the commission to carry out the work. So in terms of the geographical scope, it didn't exclude anything. So nothing was off the table here. But as you'll hear as we go through the report, the commission did not have access to certain areas. And Russia, to no one's surprise, was not at all cooperative. So uh, enough said, because I could go on about that. Um, the commission also was empowered to examine, investigate, and report on events outside Ukraine's territory as long as such events were closely related to the ongoing events in Ukraine. Um, now, this is, I think, another thing, another aspect that is really important. And if you, if you can indulge me here to just do a little quick um, toggling between documents so that we can explain these terms, which bodies of law will be applied by the commission? And there were three international humanitarian law, international human rights law, and international criminal law will constitute the law applicable to the con commission's mandate. And the commission also considered other, other obligations under international law as applicable and where relevant. And in doing so, it applied treaty law and customary international law as appropriate. Okay, so that's a lot. And, you know, just as an example of why it's important to look at the different types of law that are involved. And again, as I always say, I'm not an expert. I'm not a lawyer. If anyone here is great, jump up. But it, it just as a lay person to be able to make sense of this in my work as, as a journalist, I often cover terms that are really confused a lot of times. And those two terms are migrants and refugees. And I, I cover a lot of social service agencies that uh, work with vulnerable populations. And many times in these articles, I've had to go back and look at how these terms are defined under international law because they're used interchangeably and they are very different things. And they, they obtain to certain rights and legal protections. And that's why it's important to, to use these words precisely. So um, D, I see, I see D has her hand up. Prince, do you want me to stop um, before we dive into these three types of law that are being used by the commission here? Sure, go ahead. Go ahead, Dee. Hi. Um, I 
fundamentally agree, particularly in regards the terms used um, with or between the notion of, or not notion, that's the incorrect word, um, the standing of a refugee uh, or an asylum seeker vis-a-vis a refuge or someone who has been granted refuge and leave to remain. Uh, I'm afraid my medication is now beginning to kick in, so I probably won't stay on for much longer. Um, but um, yes, I would agree with you. Fundamentally, it is extremely important that we continue to understand the terms and the differentiations between those who are seeking refuge and those who uh, or those who are seeking, sorry, this is my medication. Ah, God, I hate it. Um, those who are seeking asylum and those who then subsequently um, gain refugee status and leave to stay. That is made furthermore complex by the Dublin Convention, um, which is one that apply, and indeed Schengen as well. Um, Now, both of those apply to any person seeking asylum needs to do so within their first safe country of entry um, and they cannot or, or ought not to be able to move through that first country of entry into say another part of Central or Eastern Europe unless they have had their claim for asylum assessed and granted and being given refuge status and right to remain either in that country and if that country then happens to be an EU 27 country then they subsequently have the right of freedom of movement within the other 20, the remaining 26 countries of the EU. But what is very important is that the Schengen Agreement and the Dublin Convention are taken into account. Um, And that in and of itself is causing a number of difficulties in regards to providing safe haven for many people uh, from Ukraine at the moment because really under those agreements and conventions that exist within the EU 27, uh, it is... 
your first third country of safety um, and you should either remain there if given refugee status or you then do have freedom of movement but it is the first third country of safety in which you should apply for asylum and that's not always ideal for many people. And I do apologise if I got a little bit of wafty there. Uh, it's just uh, certain medication uh, that I have to take for a chronic condition is um, getting a little bit, uh, making me a wee bit weary. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Dee. Thank you very much. Gina, do you want to continue? Sure. I know. Thank you, Dee, because it is. It's extremely important. I know it sounds so dry, but it has real world and real life implications and consequences here. So I, I appreciate that. And it was a learning curve for me because I heard those terms used so interchangeably. And it was only recently that in talking to experts, I, I got uh, some great information on how to keep them clear. Um, and again, in, in terms of what we're doing tonight, <clears throat> it's easy, pardon me, to... Um, you know, to confuse terms, but they are specific. So international human rights law, which is one of the three sets of law this is this report is answerable to, is and you can find this on the International Committee of the Red Cross's website, icrc.org. Again, a wonderful source of information here. Human rights law is a set of international rules established by either treaty or custom on the basis of which individuals and groups can expect and or claim certain rights that must be respected and protected by their states. So the body of international human rights standards also is fleshed out by a number of non-treaty-based principles and guidelines. They are classified as soft law, but the main treaties of human rights law are given below. And number one listed is the Convention on the Prevention and Punishment of the Crime of Genocide of 1948. And that's a universal instrument. Um, there are several others uh, that, that cover racial discrimination, civil and political rights, uh, discrimination against women. The Convention Against Torture, which was ratified in 1984 and which also uh, is relevant to this report because of the extensive findings of torture, that is part of this um, international human rights law as well, as is the International Convention for the Pro Protection of All Persons from Enforced Disappearance in 2006. Um, there's also the Convention on the Rights of the Child in 1989. So these are... Uh, these are some of the things that come under IHL or International um, Human Humanitarian Law. And you often see that acronym IHL. And the website also notes that actually international humanitarian law or international um, human rights law is and international human rights law, they're complementary. So they kind of, I mean, it's sometimes with this material, we think, oh my goodness, you know, what is this? It seems like it's, it's a war crime and it's genocide or, you know, on the positive side, it's an international human right and it's humanitarian. What is this? And there is overlap. So you're not crazy to, to sense that, um, you know, the both sets are trying to protect human life and human dignity, but they do it from different angles. So some of the, the distinctions here, here's an overlap. They both, both IHL and international human rights law 
prohibit torture or cruel treatment, provide basic rights for persons who are undergoing a criminal process. They prohibit discrimination. They have provisions for women and children. And they also regulate aspects of access to food and uh, health as rights. But there are some really important differences, and that's where they came from, what their application scope is, and then who gets to implement them, who oversees the implementation of these laws. So in international um, humanitarian law, as the, the ICRC, the International Committee of the Red Cross notes, that's, that's ancient in origin it's, um, in terms of its principles, but it, it came into being in the, in the second half of the 19th century. And in terms of what, what it applies to, that's exclusively an armed conflict. So human rights law is at all times, peacetime and armed conflict, but IHL is exclusively an armed conflict. And we actually hit on this a few weeks ago when we did a, a session on journalism. And there's a difference between uh, a war correspondent and you know, someone who's actually embedded in the, the force but is not part of the army in which they're embedded, the unit in which they're embedded. They actually are treated as prisoners of war if captured. But an accredited journalist without that distinction is not. And that's due to this law, so to IHL. So um, again, it's, it's, it can have some really uh, significant consequences. And I'm trying to find a, a more efficient way because I don't want to take too long and take time away from the report, but just to kind of pull out some of the, um, the main differences here. But another big difference is the geography. So where does it, where does it apply? What's the reach? So international humanitarian law, since it's governing armed conflicts, people know that wherever that conflict's taking place, okay, it doesn't, you know, it's not, that's not going to be an issue there. That's where it applies. Um, because it's trying to make sure that whatever states are in that conflict on a given territory are, are operating by the same rules. Um, but the human rights law um, actually, there is some controversy over where that can be applied or not. It's, it's, the human rights bodies will say that it's when a state exercises control over a territory that that's where it's, it's being um, actually applicable. But there is case law on that where they're arguing it out, and it's not settled on, extra, as they put it on the website, extraterritorial application of human rights norms governing the use of force. So there are some differences there. Um, international humanitarian law is trying to protect persons who are not or they're no longer taking part in the conflict. So you've got civilians who are not part of the conflict, wounded combatants, the sick, the shipwrecked, or prisoners of war. But human rights law, since it was developed primarily for peacetime, it applies to all persons within the jurisdiction of a state. And it doesn't distinguish between combatants and civilians for categories of protected persons. Um, international humanitarian law binds all parties to an armed conflict. So both sides got to play by the rules. Of course, we don't see that happen. But that's what's supposed to happen. Human rights law explicitly governs the relationship between a state and the persons who are on its territory or subject to its jurisdiction. So it really binds only the states. Um, it's not creating, as we talked about just the other night, legal obligations for non-state armed groups. Now, that is something that is um, changing. There are some cases where 
especially regarding ISIS and Hamas, there are there's movement to say, well, wait a minute. Yes, that they're not state groups, but darn close. They're armed groups. So that would take us a little far afield tonight. But um, actually, no, because it does mention in the report that, you know, the Wagner group and um, other non quote unquote state groups from, you know, on behalf of Russia implemented some of the atrocities that you'll hear documented in this report. So those are the two of the three types of law that this report is answerable to. The third one is international criminal law. And the ICRC website also discusses this. And this is the part, this is that the field of law that's designed to hold the individuals who are responsible for particularly serious violations of international law to account. So this was um, what you saw, um, the idea that individuals could be held for those responsible, such violations that really started to get some traction after World War II with the establishment of both the Nuremberg and Tokyo tribunals, because they were set up to, to prosecute persons responsible for atrocious crimes. So um, international criminal law deals with international crimes, war crimes, crimes against humanity, genocide, and potentially aggression. And one of the legal consequences of framing an act as an international crime is that states must prosecute and punish for its commission including through the exercise of universal Jewish jurisdiction, which allows or obliges a state to try alleged perpetrators present on a territory under its jurisdiction, even in the absence of any link between the accused and the state exercising jurisdiction. What does that mean? That means universal jurisdiction, that there's no safe place or should be no safe place for those who commit international crimes, crimes against humanity, war crimes, genocide, there shouldn't be any safe refuge. That's a loophole, as we talked about last time, that we need to close in the U.S. Um, because we don't have a statute for prosecuting crimes against humanity yet. So theoretically, there's a refuge there for people. Um, so those are the three. Again, that's the international humanitarian law, international human rights law, and international criminal law. That's what this group was working with. There's one other thing that I wanted to add in here because, again, it also becomes important. And going back to the FAQ page on the whole commission, they say, well, what standard of proof will be used by the commission? And the response is the commission used a, quote, unquote, standard of proof of, quote, unquote, reasonable grounds. And they explain that as saying the findings will be included in the reports where reasonable grounds standard of proof has been met where based on a body of verified information, an objective and ordinary prudent observer would have reasonable grounds to conclude that the facts took place as described and where legal conclusions are drawn, these facts meet all the elements of a violation or abuse and any individual identified is responsible for the violation of the abuse. Now, basically it is what it says, but I want to throw in one more thing here for consideration, because I think this might offset some of the, I know, outrage I felt when <laughs> that press conference came out and they were saying, well, we can't conclude. And I thought, what do you mean you can't conclude after two years and multiple reports by other very reputable, incredible uh, organizations such as the New Lines Institute and the joint report that they did with the Raul Wallenberg Center for Human Rights, both reports of which we've been through, actually three reports now that we've looked at um, from them, or maybe it's two. We looked at the July report 
and the May report had preceded it, the May of 2022. At any rate, going back to this whole um, proof issue, this I, I found what is really an excellent resource. This is from the, um, it's a paper entitled Standards of Proof in International Humanitarian and Human Rights Fact-Finding and Inquiry Missions. And this is by Stephen Wilkinson, and it was um, research that was done uh, supported by the Geneva Academy of International Humanitarian Law and Human Rights. And you can find this online at geneva-academy.ch. Nancy, I'll, I'll send you the link so you can put it into a mega thread here um, when I get a chance. But this is exactly what it goes through, and it, it has several conclusions. And it's really level-setting an expectation for fact-finding missions. One of the things it, it, it talks about is that fact-finding missions remain limited. They're preliminary. They, and it actually says, embrace the limitations. They're not out there to make a final judicial determination. It's, it's a quasi-judicial determination on whether normative standards of human rights, international criminal or humanitarian law have been violated. These commissions of inquiry do not, should never, and should not be deemed to make authoritative and binding determinations. It's making just a preliminary judgment. They, and they have a responsibility to admit when they're not certain. So that can help level set some expectations for us as well. That th this report isn't going to try the whole case of Russia's genocide against Ukraine. It's a, it's, it is what it is. It's, it's a fact-finding mission. So I, I think that that's, that's just something to really keep in mind. One other conclusion here um, is that the standards are not abstract. It, ends, it, it depends upon the quality of information. So standards of proof do not themselves ensure that these findings of any fact-finding mission are of high quality, credible, or accurate. The standards of proof are useful only if clear criteria and procedures are applied to each item of information collected. So it says that, you know, the standard of beyond reasonable doubt is unlikely to be feasible for a fact-finding mission's fluid process because it's not an arbitrary threshold. And it requires the individual facts to be, as they put it in this report, probed by cross-examination or other processes of verification. And, and, Fact-finding missions can't do that. They're just not able to do that. And we see that in this report. These investigators didn't even have access to key areas that are currently and only for the moment under Russia's control. They could not get to where they needed to go. And that, in fact, is probably where far more abuses than we realize have taken place. So thanks for letting me kind of put all that out there. Again, these are just resources that I invite everyone to to read through and, and consider as we listen to the information here tonight. So back to you folks. All right, Nancy, I'm going to let you decide if you want to go to D first or dive in with what you wanted to say first. Yeah, let's, let's go to D first and then I'll dive in. Okay. Yeah. Um, Cause yeah, medication wise, I probably have to say though fairly soon. I think um, a word that we all need to be looking for at the moment is refoulement. Um, 
and it is a fundamental part of international human rights law. Um, the basic foundation is that refoulement means if there is a risk that anyone can suffer persecution, torture, um, imprisonment, death because of their nationality or their um, ethnicity should they seek to leave the country they cannot be returned if they are to face refoulement but what is perhaps more crucial here in regards to Ukraine given the number of Ukrainians who have already sought and been given refuge in countries, particularly across Europe, but across the rest of the world as well. Um, what the principle of refoulement also contains is a level of chain migration. Um, so if someone has found a safe place of refuge in a third party state, then they can apply for their family uh, members to be given safe haven as well under the international human rights of refoulement so it's it, it's definitely a refoulement is a critical word um, and it pops up in many different ways uh, in international human rights law um, and it's definitely worth looking out for and the potential uh, consequences or the potential outcomes of terms of refoulement are certainly worth um, investigating further in regards to Ukraine. Okay, um, yeah, my meds are really so, okay. Thanks, Dee. So, Nancy, you wanted to bring us some information from the FAQ. Yeah, one of the things that I had sat through before the report was issued was the um, press conference that this commission had with the, I guess it's the United Nations press gaggle, basically, uh, which was on the same day in September, September 25th. I forget whether it was I, whether it was before they presented um, the information in the UN session or after, to be honest with you, but there were some noteworthy items um, that they that they talked about, and this was an an opportunity for the three members of this commission: um, Eric Merce, 
um, Pablo de Grief, and um, recently added in June was um, Brenda Grover. So those are the three members of the commission. And it, it was interesting to hear um, first some of the things that they wanted to stress and then also some of the questions that the journalists asked them. And if, if you wanted to go back and listen to the, the full Q&A from the press or with the press, that's in the mega thread for this week as well too. So that is linked there. Um, but of course, one of the things they were asked about was um, the question of incitement, which is of course top on everyone's mind. And all they were willing to say at this point, and this was from Merce, who's the head of the commission, is that, uh, and this that's right, this was after their session with the UN. He said, we also mentioned that one aspect of this may be the question of incitement, uh, which comes from certain Russian media. And Past that point, he was very closed-lipped about it, um, but that was a clear indication that as they look into, does this hit the threshold that they would recommend for genocide treatment, that that is one of the key sources that they're looking at for intent. And the question was, do you have a threshold for that or additional detail? And what he was willing to say was, inform the public that we are looking into this matter. That is the only point at this stage. And I, I thought that was very interesting to hear as well. There were, and of course, you would expect this from journalists. They, they asked regarding deaths in custody as a result of torture. Were there any counts? Um, had it increased in the second year or had it continued at the same levels? And what uh, Mr. DeGrieff said is that they had deepened their investigation and their findings were that there had been widespread and systematic use of torture, that in different regions it is taking place. So he noted that it's across regions that it is taking place on the basis of the same methods, as in region to region occurring on the same methods, and that it seems to be a common practice, particularly in places of detention that are under Russian control for extended periods of time. We also make the remark that those methods of torture target particularly people who are suspected of being informants to the Ukrainian authorities. But the point to emphasize is that we have found this to be a widespread and common practice using similar methods across different places, and that the levels of brutality sometimes reach the cause of death, causing the death of victims. This is something we are paying a lot of attention to, and we have argued that this may amount to crimes against humanity. He was asked how many cases, and they clarified, he clarified that their mandate is to investigate all violations, but that it's impossible to investigate all, so they're taking representative cases. And he said it is a fairly large number, close and far from the lines of embattlement. Go ahead, Prince. I just, um, you know, I don't know that he addressed this in the specific session that you're 
speaking about right now. But what I also want to point out is in this report, they were very specific to say three. They gave three examples when it came to Ukraine. They didn't give a number when it came to Russia, but they said specifically three when it came to Ukraine. And they did list them and they did give details about them, which I thought was very appropriate. And Gina has her hand up, too. Yeah, I don't know if we want to wait until we get into part two of the report, which talks about the legal framework and what um, instruments of, of international human rights law Russia and Ukraine are party to. But when you were saying torture, I thought it was interesting to note, if you go on to um, Human Rights Watch's website, um, you know, Russia is, um, it did accept, let's see, the, the Soviet Union ratified the Convention Against Torture in 1987, and then Russia submitted a second periodic report on the implementation of the convention. But long story short, (laughs) the UN was already criticizing Russia for its, you know, numerous allegations of uh, torture for confessions, for extracting confessions. This seems to be part of the uh, of the procedure. And this has long been known. So it's it's it bears uh, on this report where we hear that a lot of the torture is towards the extraction of quote unquote confessions for collaboration with Ukrainian authorities. So, but this is this has a long, long history in Russia, both in Russia and in the Soviet Union that preceded it. And if you want to read some of the most horrific cases, the Gulag Archipelago by Solzhenitsyn will give you plenty of reading material, all two volumes of it. So, just want to uh, point that out about Russia and torture. Yeah, and it was interesting that the next question another journalist had was definitely digging into um, that, you know, in the briefing so far in the Q&A, the press didn't, uh, one of the people from the press didn't think that they'd heard a lot about violations from the Ukrainian forces. And was it possible that there weren't any violations in many months? And uh, what they what they noted is exactly what Um, Prince commented on is that they did have, um, they said there was a large difference in the numbers of violations, that there were a large number of violations on the Russian side and a few incidents on the Ukrainian side, which were addressed both in the session with the UN and addressed in the report. And that's what Prince was speaking to as well. Go ahead, Gina. I just have to add, because I do think that this gives us some historical context to show how ingrained this is in Russia's police forces and even its its overall mentality. Following up on what I just said, in 1994, there was um, a U.N. special reporter that went to examine con- pretrial conditions in Russia. OK, and it's it's worth quoting his words Um, he actually said that, and it said it was vivid and harsh, that you would need the poetic skills of a Dante or the artistic skills of a Bosch to adequately describe the infernal conditions found in these cells. The senses of smell, touch, taste, and sight are repulsively assailed. The conditions are cruel, inhuman, and degrading. They are torturous to the extent that suspects are confined there to facilitate the investigation by breaking their wills with a view to eliciting 
confessions, and information, they can properly be described as being subjected to torture. So this is, again, something that has a long history in Russia and in the Soviet Union. And and we cannot help but think that this is normalized. It also proves that there's an historical precedent for it, that it didn't just come out of nowhere, that it's not some thing that just evolved suddenly, but it has a long history. And in fact, some of the methods being used now have long been known in Russia, the, especially the, the, the shocking, the electrocution shocking. And I think it, if I recall correctly, it was in one of the New Lines reports that we looked at, the, the call to Putin, as they call it, where you're shocked for every time you don't give the correct answer that they're seeking, was a technique that had been known in Russia. Like that was what it was called there, the call to Putin technique being applied here. It's, and it's the, in this the, report. And it's in this report, too. OK, yeah. So, I mean, but we, that was also cited in the New Lines report as well. So, um, again, historical basis here for, for the use of this torture, I think, speaks to the systematic nature of it, which is significant in proving genocide. Yep. And I've got just one other item that was covered during the presser, and I'll go through that and uh, then we can move on to the next component. Um it, it was interesting. There was one journalist who was um, very much wanting information on the use of Ukraine of the internationally banned cluster bombs. And mind you, this journalist was focused on Ukraine's use of them because, of course, it had recently at that point been announced that the United States was going to provide that capability to Ukraine, completely ignoring the fact the journalist didn't even bring up the fact that, hey, hasn't it been alleged that Russia has done exactly that against civilian populations? Um, so I found that part quite ironic. Um, they did pretty firmly push back that that is a recent decision and they said, we haven't had the opportunity to carry out investigations of their use, and we do not comment on cases that we have not already investigated ourselves. But I, I did find that interesting because, of course, as, as we've seen so far since the United States has provided that capability to Ukraine, it's been used um, – and gosh, we'll drop from the from uh, the speakers. I was going to ask him to uh, to check my accuracy here, Prince. I'll ask you to do that as well. But it was used uh, recently against um, a an airport a, a airport that was being used for Russian helicopters and did very effective damage against those helicopters, which had been used. A, to fire missiles against civilian targets, not strictly in the battle theater. And the other use we have heard recently that the Ukrainians are using those cluster munitions for is disassembling the munition and using the cluster bomblets in their FPV drones to take out vehicles and specialized equipment and things like that. So I, I know that journalist was very focused on, you know, these things are illegal in many countries. So, you know, 
what what are they going to be doing with them? And are you guys investigating that? Um, and they did pretty effectively shut him down. But I also wanted to point out what we've observed with how Ukraine is using them so far compared to how Russia has used them. So in, in some ways, in the back of my mind, when I was hearing that back and forth, um, and I can't recall if that was from Merce or De Grief, but when I was hearing that back and forth with the journalist, part of me was going, yeah, I'm looking forward to when you guys dig into that and shut this guy up, <laughs> to be honest with you. <laughs> no offense to your profession, Gina, but... <laughs> That that was definitely a journalist with an agenda on his mind at the time. <laughs> James, go ahead. Oh. oh, sorry. I don't know. There was some kind of question that we were going to try to sneak into some press conference and ask a journalist. Uh, we were talking about that last night, but I slept since then and I can't remember what it was. Um, I'll let James take on the uh, cluster munitions. And if I have more to add, I will after that. <laughs> Hey, uh, good evening. Uh, very interesting so far. The the cluster munitions <clears throat> broken down into separate bomblets and used have a much smaller radius of effect and therefore um, are much less likely to cause any kind of collateral damage. I don't think there's much chance the way that the war is currently being fought uh, along um, kind of hardened positions away from population centers. But still, um, the fact that they're doing this is, is something that does reduce um, even slight chances of that um, kind of cluster munition. And I think that we've determined that the faster this war ends, the fewer Russians and the fewer Ukrainians will die. So that's that's a uh, in terms of the yep. intent of genocide, that's that's um, a real plus. It's not necessarily genocidal, but reduction of death, I believe, is the whole point of the Genocide Convention. Yep, excellent. And thank you for that, James. And I just did want to circle back to one other point that I I had in my notes that DeGrafe um, stressed as well when, when he had a journalist asking how many cases of death had they investigated. You know, and remember, that's when he said that it was impossible for them to investigate all and that they were taking representative cases, and that it was a fairly large number. He stressed that it was close and far from the lines of embattlement. And that clearly is an area that they're focused on as well, because it's a lot more potential that something close to the lines of embattlement could be civilian collateral damage. But when you're talking about incidents that have been far from the lines of embattlement, um, then that um, is clearly being measured to a different standard as far as um, intentional um, assaults against civilian populations outside of the uh, lines of combat. So I did want to stress that because they did stress close and far from the lines of embattlement uh, were the exact words they used. Go ahead, James. I'd like to call Fabian Hoffman uh, to the uh, witness chair now as a, a witness for uh, the prosecutor because he would be able to describe mathematically 
how unlikely it is that it's collateral damage and it would be an infinitesimally small chance that these things are by accident um, and that ought to count for something in a courtroom well and you can look at well it, I, I think it's sort of drifting a little bit but um, you know we can look at the things that, that are happening uh, forced evacuations that are happening in close to the frontline areas for um, civilians and children specifically, um, it's been really, really ramped up, especially since they have gotten the DPICMs. Is that what they're called? Anyway, the cluster munitions, um, very much ramped up and, uh, and, and, and it's not just like, okay, you need to evacuate. No, it's, it's forced evacuation at this point. It's, you are leaving. You do not have a choice. Um, and, and I think that, that that has a lot to play into it. And then I had another point. Um, but, oh, I know. The other thing that um, what you guys were just saying made me think of is, is the in, intentional bombing of the funeral um, luncheon um, in the report that came out from that this week. Um, so, yeah. Anyway. All right. Was there anything more to add, Nancy, before we move on in the report? Nope, let's dive in. Diving in with both feet. And uh, yeah. Um, so I think actually a lot of the summary has been has been uh, talked about here um, in the in the last bit while we've been um, getting leading up to here. But, uh, you know, the, what it's collection collection of further evidence, I think, is is one of the keys here. Um, but there are a couple of just little things that I wanted to point out when it comes to this, um, besides the examples, that, that just a little bit of an example. And I did mention it earlier um, when we were talking was that, you know, when there are li limitless, well, I'm sure they're not limitless, but there are a lot of violations when it comes to the Russian army. They have specifically said in three cases, investigations found that Ukrainian authorities have committed violations of human rights against persons whom they have accused of collaboration with Russian authorities. Um, and, and that is just a really, really big, vast, vast big difference. Um, and, uh, and yeah, and, and so really not a whole lot to pull out of the summary because we'll go through it. And a lot of it, actually, you guys have just touched on um, just naturally in, in the things that you've been sharing here. Um, so on into the introduction on page two, or excuse me, on page three. Um, actually, friends, bef before you step through that, I think in the summary, I did want to, to note that they did specifically call out that the collected evidence further shows that Russian authorities have committed the war crimes of willful killing, torture, rape, and other sexual violence, and the deportation of children to the Russian Federation. So, again, nothing that we haven't talked about previously, but they explicitly call those specific crimes out in the summary. So I just wanted to call that out as well. No, they also funny. noted, yeah, and they also noted that interviews with victims and witnesses, um, and this is about the widespread torture that I talked about, 
the interviews illustrated a profound disregard towards human dignity by Russian authorities in these circumstances. And um, again, we talked about that in previous sessions as well, that that um, disregard toward human dignity and in fact trying to crush human dignity is typically what we're seeing from the other reports that we've previously discussed as well. Yeah, absolutely. And and uh, uh, then going on, it we've talked about this quite a bit in the last few weeks. Um, and they they specifically say in the introduction that they adopt a victim centered approach and adheres to the do no harm principle. It apply and it is supply uh, applying the standard of proof of reasonable grounds to conclude. So that um, victim-centered approach is something that, that is, is really important, and I'm glad that they pointed it out there. And it's, I'm glad it's something that we have um, spent time talking about, um, that uh, they are, they are following, following their own guidance here in how they are approaching these interviews. Um, and, of course, this is building on their report of March 2023, um, and, uh, of course, again, because of the large number of relevant, um, events and security, logistical constraints, they focused on samples of allegations and cases, which illustrate specific patterns. And so I think just pointing out the numbers here, um, is important. Um, they visited 32 settlements in nine regions of Ukraine, a majority in Kherson and Zaporizhia provinces. They traveled to Poland. They relied on 466 interviews with 455 persons, 222 men and 223, I'm sorry, 223 women and 223 men. And they inspected sites of attacks, places, where detention and torture were committed and compiled, examined documentary photographs and videos. And that's one thing that we know that Ukraine has been very good with is, is getting that documentary evidence together. And there are open source databases that contain that evidence in addition to, I'm sure, uh, closed source um, databases that the government has access to that I'm sure that they share. Um, the other thing that is important to point out here in my personal humble opinion is um, their appreciation for access and cooperation extended by the government for, from Ukraine, of Ukraine. However, as they say here, it regrets that its efforts to engage the Russian Federation have remained unsuccessful. The commission has addressed to Russian officials 19 written requests for meetings, access, and information without receiving any answer, no answer at all. It is consistently expressed in public an interest of establishing meaningful communication with Russian officials the commission has expressed its gratitude for the valuable testimonies and other information it has received from victims, witnesses, 
and other people's. So yes, that was, um, that, that I think is something to point out the, when you have nothing to hide, you open up the doors wide and you, you share everything that you can. And, um, you, you are an open book and you have nothing to hide. And you know what, even with those three cases that were found and, and with, even with things that are found that are not correct or, or, or wrong, um, you're willing to do something about that. And I've seen that in previous reports. Um, but when you have something to hide, you don't talk, you don't talk at all. And, uh, you, you hide basically. Um, now it then goes into the legal framework. Um, Gina, do you want to talk about that a little bit? I think actually you may have covered it all and more, um, which is great. Um, but, but it does talk about legal framework next. Sure. Just as a refresher. And, uh, it's interesting when you're saying that they, the commission had 19 requests into, to Russian officials without any answer. I just think it's so interesting to keep in mind Russia trying to position itself as establishing a new multipolar order and a new world order. Apparently that involves no communication with other nations and no regard for international law or human life. The, the irony is not lost on me. Um, from, from seeing that. At any rate, the, the second um, part two here, it talks about that legal framework that I'd kind of gone a bit long on earlier, but the three uh, bodies of law that the commission was working was in were that international human rights law, international humanitarian law, and international criminal law. And again, international humanitarian law is the one that governs armed conflict. Um, and it, it does note that uh, the Russian Federation and Ukraine are party to seven, respectively seven, and then in Ukraine's case, eight United Nations core international human rights instruments. And they're also bound by international humanitarian law instruments, including the four Geneva Conventions of 1949. The situation in Ukraine is an international armed conflict, which is part of common article two of those Geneva Conventions. Now, neither Ukraine nor the Russian Federation is a state party to the Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court, but the ICC does have jurisdiction in Ukraine thanks to two declarations Ukraine lodged and referrals by state parties. Um, the Rome Statute and its elements of crimes did help inform some of um, provide some of the detailed elements for some of these crimes. And so wherever the ICC was found to lack jurisdiction, the commission applied the elements of crimes within the Rome statute, as long as they were in harmony with customary international law. And then the third part of the report is the background, the political and the military context. Uh, I don't know how much of this we want to go into. Um, I'm happy to read some more of it. Or do you want to, back to you, Prince, how do you want to proceed? The, the background and political military context, I don't think there is a whole lot in there that, that is new and groundbreaking yeah. as far as yeah. information, really. Yeah. The, the, the only thing is maybe in paragraph 15, maybe some of the numbers, sure. um, which I think we basically all know, but, but I think the, the, the numbers are more, more more it other than other than just pointing out in number in in paragraph 14 that it is um 
very specifically says that the Russian Federation's refusal to extend participation in the Black Sea Grain Initiative in July 2023 was widely condemned. So that's something that they do acknowledge in the report. But other than that, I think it's mostly the numbers because I think we all know the history fairly well. Exactly. Yeah. Although what was interesting to me when I was reading the report, how many times have I seen this in reference to Putin and, and Russia? But it bears, especially when you're thinking about the international bodies of law that, that, that are governing this type of inquiry, how often have we gotten accustomed to hearing Russia and Putin say, the West, oh, it's the West, the West. That's not a legal term, right? That's not a legal term. The West is not legally defined. There is no coalition of countries that forms the West as a legal entity. So isn't it curious that Putin and his regime, which are as is consonant with Russian history, very quick to wage lawfare, where everything has to have a, a law and a code, and we're going to enact stricter and stricter and more restrictive and, and repressive laws and be very specific with our terms. Isn't it interesting that for someone who claims that, how diffuse this claim of, I'm, we're fighting the West. Well, there is no collective West as a legal entity, no matter what he thinks. Or, or tries to assume. And I think we have to start questioning these terms. You know, we have to, we have to not get used to certain constructs and, and slogans and propaganda and just not question it because a lot of what Russia is saying does not make legal sense. It doesn't make logical sense or legal sense. And I just, as I said, it was one of those cases where I was reading something I'd seen a million times. And, and, and the statement here is that, the report says more broadly, Russian government officials further accused the West for fueling conflict in Ukraine. We absolutely have to challenge statements like that because we hear them, unfortunately, from people who are either against supporting Ukraine or have begun to waver in their support for Ukraine, where they say, well, the West. So don't don't be afraid to challenge people on that. That's my little sidebar on that. And to get to the numbers, um, the, now, some of these, of course, unfortunately, you know, we know that the real numbers and, and the, uh, as time goes on, these are higher. But in the report, it did note that the armed conflict, of course, has had devastating consequences for the civilian population. And this was as of September 10th of this year, the UN office, uh, the UN's High Commissioner for Human Rights recorded 27,149 civilian casualties, including 9,614 killed and 17,535 injured. The actual number is likely higher. That's part of the report. In addition to 6,204,600 persons who have left the country as of October 3rd of this year, 5,088,000 are internally displaced as of June 2023. So obviously internally displaced, you're within the country's borders, but you are no longer in your accustomed place of residence. Um, in, in Ukraine, many of them have shifted, and we saw this in the, especially in the early days of the full-scale invasion, it was that westward movement. And I've actually interviewed nuns who helped people get on trains, just get out of the Zaporizhia area where they, these nuns were operating, and they were just putting people on trains, get west. In the west of Ukraine, Ukrainian Catholic University in Lviv, which is where I stayed for part of my time in Ukraine this past summer, that they turned that into a center to help those who had been displaced. I interviewed people who were from Kherson 
who were still living in Lviv, you know, a year and a half after the the full scale invasion. Their husbands were at war. They were living in a um, it was basically a Jesuit refugee center, which was in Lviv. It was a former rich man's house that had been turned into a, a place. And I, 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 I do like to add things like that as we read numbers, because we always have to remember behind numbers are human beings. So those are the internally displaced, um, close to 5.1 million. Continuing in the report, the UN's Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs estimated that 17.6 million people in Ukraine are in need of humanitarian assistance and access for humanitarian assistance to areas affected by the fighting has been challenging. It's hard to get to these places. In addition to physical and psychological trauma, the armed conflict has resulted in severe limitations of the access to some of the most basic human rights. Again, to to put a little bit more context on those two statements there, 17.6 million people in Ukraine. Well, Ukraine at the start of the full-scale invasion had, I think it was between 43 and 44 million people. So do the math. That's, 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 that's an enormous number of people. It's an enormous percentage of your people who, who need humanitarian assistance because of Russia's war of genocide. Um, that, that to me is staggering. I'm, I'm not good at doing percentages in my head, but if anyone's got their calculator handy, I mean, you can certainly calculate that pretty quickly. Um, you're looking at, you know, not quite half, but, a, a hugely significant number of people there. Um, and then the, the access to the humanitarian assistance in the areas affected by the fighting has been challenging. I have interviewed nuns and in fact, have a standing invitation to go visit the Brazilian sisters who are in Zaporizhia, who literally drive food, medicine, and actually some defense equipment, meaning um, non-lethal aids, such as, you know, vests and night vision goggles, things like that. They drive it there because it's needed and it's difficult to get to some of these areas. And the soldiers, there's usually a soldier who comes to protect them and ride along with them for some portion of the journey. But but just getting there and, and these nuns are fearless. So they they really, you know, they, they don't care. They're going to go because it's their mission. But it is difficult to get to these areas. Um, and, and again, the psych, the physical and the psychological trauma and the lack of access to some of the most basic human rights. And we've seen the pictures of the, the evacuations, you know, people who are, there was one video that was online. The woman had been a language teacher and she was there. And, and I'm sure many of you have seen this video. I, I think that Anton Gerashenko may have tweeted it out. She was leaning on her balcony with her cat kind of perched just around her neck. And she had been a language teacher and, she had to be finally evacuated, but she was living among rubble, an apartment building that had just been battered by Russia to the point where you don't have plumbing, you don't have, you know, you don't have running water, you don't have basic facilities, you don't have the things that no one on this planet should have to scramble for. So, and then the section four is the the violations of international law, and it has some subsections. So I can just kind of read the top and then toggle back to you and and. Uh, you, Prince and Nancy, um, the commission gathered new evidence of violations of international human rights law and international humanitarian law and corresponding crimes committed by the Russian authorities in Ukraine. It has investigated unlawful attacks with explosive weapons and their impact on civilians, torture, 
sexual and gender-based violence and transfers and deportations of children. And then as Prince stressed, it has found three violations, three incidents in which violations of human rights, rights were committed by Ukrainian authorities, and it's investigating those. But compare those three to the overwhelming and still fully undetermined number that we have taking place in, in, um, on, on behalf, committed by Russia. And if you go on to Ukraine's website, war.ukraine.ua, those war crime numbers are there. As of today on the website, Ukraine has counted 111,675 war crimes that have been registered. So three versus 111,675,000. The three is the one determined by the UN 111,675,000 by Ukraine, but I think you can see the difference. So I don't know if you want to dive into the next section or, or take over the, this would be the violations committed during the conduct of hostilities. And it, it really starts breaking it down. What, what happened, where, and exactly. when and two attacks there. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's, I think, you know, just skimming over the violations committed. Um, I think that, uh, the 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 point here is is basically it's already been covered i think um you know the individual attacks with the explosive weapons um it, it, that it's examined um numerous reports on the attacks of of ukraine, the territory of ukraine and has found reasonable grounds of course to conclude that the strike of the residential building in uman uh Tricase province in April of 23, as well as on a supermarket and gas station in Kherson in May of 23, were indiscriminate attacks perpetrated by the Russian armed forces. Um, and in both cases, concluded that Russian armed forces failed to take uh, feasible precautions to ensure that the objects affected were not civilian, which is exactly what we heard about the 59, the attack that killed the 59 people who were gathering for the funeral lunch. Um, so, you know, we get all of these little bits and pieces and I keep on thinking that all of these little bits and pieces are adding up to evidence for genocide. Um, go ahead, Gina. Yeah, I just wanted to say in that section of the report, what struck me again with an eye to the genocide convention, the Commission noted its consideration of the cumulative aspect on civilians of the large-scale attacks on Ukraine's energy infrastructure launched by the Russian armed forces starting back in October of 2022. And the commission also started investigations regarding, as it put it, the circumstances of the breach at the Kahovka Dam. I'm going to say that right. Kahovka Dam. <laughs> okay, I hope that was a little better. Um, but that gets into the part of the Genocide Convention where one of the five conditions of, of or parts of the genocide definition is deliberately inflicting on the group conditions of life calculated to bring about its physical destruction in whole or in part, attacking the energy infrastructure, attacking that dam and flooding and destroying areas the soil changing the composition, the so all of that, and the, the the flora, the fauna, everything that was destroyed in that dam, in that dam's destruction. You know, these th this is really hitting the genocide convention, Article Two, Section C. Con you know, inflicting those conditions of life that that make it um, 
that, that worked to bring about the physical destruction of the group in whole or in part. So that, those two points spoke to me with respect to the genocide convention. Yeah, absolutely. And then the report goes into um, breaking things down a little bit and giving a little bit more examples of exactly um, the items that, that uh, they have mentioned here. And that would, uh, of course, start with the impact of attacks with explosive weapons. And uh, as of September 2023, it is estimated that 8,062 persons were killed and 16,610 were injured in such attacks, in explosive attacks. The actual number is more than likely much higher. And it has visited, they have visited the sites of the attacks and spoken with survivors. Beyond the deep trauma incurred by the loss of loved ones in the aftermath of the attacks, the population has had to cope with considerable challenge in securing housing and access to essential services and supplies. While they were visiting Uman, the city where the commission spoke with the residents of the apartment building, which had been hit by a missile. I think we all remember that. The strike led to a high number of casualties, mainly women and children, and substantial damage to the affected block in the neighboring buildings. Survivors shared their traumatic experiences with them and the hardships they've been facing since, um, since that devastating attack. Oh, look, Nancy disappeared. And uh, other attacks, uh, excuse me, other examples from the commission um, in Dnipro City, uh, in Dnipro Province, uh, the functioning clinic that was providing, this one hit me hard. The functioning, the, the functioning clinic providing psychological care, including for trauma related to the armed conflict, was destroyed on attack by, by an attack on, in May of 2023, during working hours, they had, and it had to close, obviously. This led to the killing of four persons and the injury of over 30 persons, including patients, medical staff, and the destruction of the clinic providing psychological care to people already scarred by the conflict, predictably leading to re-traumatization of the people. Um, that, that one pissed me off. Sorry. I just had to say that. Because, you know, how many medical clinics have we heard of? And, and here's one that is um, providing some of the most essential care in this specific time. Psychological care. Psychological care. You're, you're looking at places that are providing medical care, psychological care, and spiritual care that are targeted repeatedly time after time after time. And they're take, it's making me mad. Gina, go ahead. No. And again, this gets into article two, letter C of the genocide convention, deliberately inflicting on the group conditions of life calculated to bring about its physical destruction in whole or in part. You take away the medical facilities, you take away the psychological and counseling centers, you're going after that. There's no military target there. There were no military targets in these places. And that's what one thing this report pointed out time and time and time again. 
places are hit. They are, this is not, oops, this is not, we thought that was a building. There, there's no excuse. No one's, no one is fooled by this. No one is convinced by this. You are deliberately attacking facilities that are designed to create these conditions to make life, to, to take away life, if not in the immediate, in the consequential, in the aftermath, reducing the number of medical facilities that Ukraine has. That's, that's creating genocidal conditions. That's actually violating this particular article, this, this condition of Article 2 of the Genocide Convention. How can we fail to be, how can we fail to be undeceived here? I mean, does Russia not know? And this gets into, if we're going to just sidebar really quickly on this intention, intention, you know, which, which is one of the real struggles with getting genocide properly prosecuted and prevented. We talked in previous sessions about, you know, intention, the current burden of proof is this this standard of dolus specialis, which almost expects you to read the mind of, of the perpetrators who, who don't leave written records. They're careful to say, although in Russia's case, I mean, they haven't been as careful to say. They've been pretty blatant about it through their state propagandists. But Putin himself is pretty evasive. You know, he'll, he'll come up with the spin the wheel of excuses as to what, you know, this week's excuse for raging genocide on Ukraine is. But it usually won't say just because I hate them or because I just don't think they should exist. I mean, he'll, he'll go back and forth on that. But the point is, he knows well in this dolus specialis where, you know, you're expected to read the mind of the, of the prosecutor of genocide who isn't leaving a whole lot of evidence. They, they, they are committing these acts. The, the, the push is towards having a knowledge-based approach for the burden of proof, which is closer to what the framers of the Genocide Convention, Raphael Lemkin, the, the Polish jurist who... Uh, was is really the reason that we have this convention. That's what they were going for, that these people are doing it in a systematic way with the knowledge that their actions are going to result in the systematic destruction of a given group of people. And that is what Putin and, and the Russian forces are doing by taking out health facilities, by taking out psychological facilities, care facilities, you name it, grocery stores, fuel stations, dams that, that provide water supply and hydroelectric power. This is, this is a, a clear pattern, a clear, clear pattern, and they well know what they're doing. Attacks on the energy infrastructure, they know what they're doing. So I'm sorry, you're not the only one who is mad. I had to just, I had to just, uh, had to just say that. So back to we you. We could, we could, we could have a rage meeting later. <laughs> um, no, yeah, no, it's it's all good, and and it is. It, you're you're totally right, and this one's going to be hard. This next item, paragraph twenty six, is one that is really hard for me, um, because I I feel like I lost somebody I didn't know. <laughs> In Kramatorsk city, Donetsk province, a restaurant was hit on the twenty seventh of June, twenty twenty three during the busiest working hour, leading to the death, death of at least 11 civilians, including three girls and many injuries. Victoria Amelina was one of the people who was killed in that. And uh, she was a guest on Maria Report. 
about a year ago, I think. And uh, she was an amazing writer, an amazing human being who was actually doing um, investigations of war crimes with truth hunters. And uh, I was sent some videos that were um, not really necessarily seen far and wide. And as soon as I saw how she was hit, I knew that she wasn't going to live. But it was several days before I knew that she was had passed. Um, but uh, that was that was one that was really hard for me, and uh, it's a it's a huge, bright, huge light that was taken out of Ukraine. James, go ahead. I popped up to say something about the um, genocide by changing the conditions uh, the target group is in. And that seems to me to be the most um, thorough and lasting evidence of what Russia has done by way of genocide, because it's the rubble in probably, you know, a thousand cities, towns, or villages across Ukraine that that are going to be enduring evidence of what has happened. And uh, so I think it's got, it's the best evidence. Of course, we need the uh, the intent to be shown, but I think that's there too. Thanks. Thanks. And then they do uh, point out in their sample one more place, which was a major real retailer that had to close after it was affected by an attack on May third, May third, twenty twenty twenty. 2023, uh, limiting the availability of places where the population could get essential supplies. These attacks represent only a small sample among the multitude of situations affecting the lives of the civilian population of Ukraine. That may be the most important sentence of the whole thing. They have given us a small sample of what they've looked at. Um, and it, then it goes into a little bit about the law. Gina, do you want to talk a little bit about the law, what they say in here about that? Sure. Um, so in international humanitarian law, indiscriminate attacks are defined as those not directed at a specific military objective, or they employ a method or means of combat which can't be directed at a, spe a specific military objective or the effects of which can't be limited. So again, this gets into the fact that there are rules to, to war, as strange as that may sound, and clearly Russia does not follow those. And the commission recently documented attacks that affected civilian objects such as residential buildings, a railway station, shops, a warehouse for civilian use, leading to numerous casualties. By the way, that warehouse strikes home for me because that warehouse was in, um, in Lviv and it was humanitarian aid and had been a large donation. This, this happened back in, um, I believe in, it was in September, early October. And that tons of humanitarian aid. So it, to me, I, I'm still processing that. 
And one one person who was a security guard there was killed. The warehouse had been donated by a businessman, a wealthy businessman, for the use of a Catholic charity there named Caritas. And all of it just burned up. And to be really honest, I believe from what I know that the, the Russian forces knew what was there. They knew what was in that warehouse that was not near a military target. Um, and the weapons employed uh, include numerous missiles and rockets. And when those are used in a populated area, they're going to have a wide impact and cause harm and damage to civilians and critical infrastructure. You know, we often think, again, just to kind of tie it to our daily reality, um, you know, in law enforcement, when, when you have a situation, I mean, police are or should be trained that, you know, when they're in a populated area, the discharge of a firearm becomes all the more perilous because, of course, the goal is not to hit innocent bystanders. So scale that up to dropping, you know, weapons and rockets, training them on populated areas. What do you expect? You're expecting to do maximum damage. You're not trying to take out military installations here. Um, and the, the report says, in most incidents, the commission has not been able to identify a military presence in the locations affected by the attacks. It is also found that in some situations, adequate precautions were not taken to verify the targets. And that was the case in the attack on the residential building in Uman City, which struck, ob- and this is, this is even more devastating, it struck objects that have not served a military purpose for over two decades. Yeah, that part blew me away as well. You know, just that there is, with any level of surveillance intelligence available to Russia, they would have been able to determine that, you know, it it doesn't, you know, it's not like we're dealing with an era where there are no satellites and that Russia does not have satellites or things like that with which they would be able to determine um, the usage of warehouses and residential buildings, you know, just beyond the pale. Go ahead, Gina. I'll add one more thing, and this is terrible because I'm not a military intelligence specialist, but we've all seen from the daily reports how rigorous the investigations are into the collaborators. You know, those people whom Russia has implanted or somehow co-opted to to supporting them and giving locations for targets and reporting them. We see how aggressively Ukraine has had to to arrest and to, you know, to stop this. Why? Because it's it's treason and you're endangering human life in doing that. When you were just saying about, you know, Russia has satellites. Yes, they have that. They also have people that they're paying off to, to give coordinates. And in this case, I would be willing to bet they had people in there that they, you know, through, through social media that they had, you know, at least one or two people in that area possibly that they had compromised or who had compromised themselves by colluding with Russia and, gave information and knew well that those buildings were unoccupied and long disused. I'm just saying, and I don't mean to be, to be cynical, but I, I don't also want to be disingenuous here. You know, as soon as the, the um, attack 
took place on the funeral reception, my first thought was when I could have a thought because of the horror of it was who in that town betrayed, you know, who, who reported those coordinates because there was no reason that that should have been deemed a military target that had to be reported in that someone would attack like that. These people will be here and it's this reburial and, you know, so, um, which, yeah. Did you find the answer to that question? I have not because I've been buried in stories, but I know you have. So tell me. Yes, they have identified the person. They have identified the person. They have served suspicion on the person. I will have to look back and find the actual data. He is um, somebody who is currently hiding in Russia, um, but he did it through contact. He grew up in that. He grew up there. He grew up there. And so he did that through contacts that he still had there in the community, just chatting with them like good buddies. Um, but when he found out that this funeral was going to be happening and in uh, and, and the details of it, he passed that information on and they have been able to identify him. And uh, there is a basically an arrest warrant out for him and they know who he is. And uh, he is currently hiding in the Russian Federation, but I bet you they'll get him. Well, and, and again, doesn't that show you that Russia has people on the ground who are well aware? And it's more damning. I think that the more of these people who are served with suspicions and arrested, it shows that Russia has even less excuse for saying, oh, well, we thought it was a military target. Well, that doesn't square with what you've got on the ground. That doesn't square with the number of people that have been credibly accused of providing coordinates to you so how are you missing these targets no you're targeting them again it it only serves to prove in a horrible way just how knowledgeable russia is about what it's doing here and again if we move to that knowledge-based burden of proof we'd be in a far better position to be able to convict russia of genocide yes 100 percent. and for you not right the second but at some point I will go and look back because that was just within the last couple of weeks. And I will send you the SBU case. I think Tracy is sleeping because if Tracy was awake, she'd be digging through it right now and she would be sending it to me. But I think she's asleep, which is fine. Um, But yeah, if we realistically, if we look at how many of these, I'm in an interesting position because on Friday nights I do this. And on Saturday nights, for me, I do the SBU segment with with Tracy. So tonight, I will talk about all of these explosions that have happened in these residential places. And tomorrow night, I'll talk about the collaborator that was caught for directing fire into, um, you know, this certain location. And this collaborator who was directing fire into this certain location. And all of these stories of collaborators who are directing the fire. So, yeah, I don't buy it, Russia. Just saying. Um, so, yeah. And like like Gina said, that that location in Uman, for over 20 years, it hadn't been anything related to, aware, to um, the military. Um, and also just to note that they did look at the possibility if it could have been um, affected by 
the intercept interception by Ukrainian air defense and the commission found no evidence that that is something that happened. Um, so that is, that is something um, to note there also. So the commission in the Uman case concluded that the Russian armed forces in violation of international humanitarian law conducted an indiscriminate attack on a residential building in Uman and failed to take feasible, feasible precautions. So boy, you know, it, that's, that's what it all is adding up to me. All of these reports are little pieces of evidence that can be used in the long run. And, uh, it's 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 rather interesting. So, um, Nancy, do you want to continue on and and go with the next one, or do you want me to keep on going? If you can go ahead for a second, Prince. Thanks. All right. So, um, in May third, there was starting at ten a.m. Of course, a succession of attacks and explosive weapons took place. Um, over the course of several hours and struck several various locations in Kherson, including the ATB market and, and Oko gas station and the railway station, um, an epicenter, hypermarket, and a residential building. They didn't hit just one thing, they hit them all. And uh, uh, the casualties at uh, 10 impact sites in Kherson city and it's surrounding with 21 casualties killed, 12 men and nine women, and dozens were injured. The commission focused on three of the impact sites, the ATB supermarket, the Oko gas station, and the railway station. And they determined that all three of the above sites were hit by rocket artillery systems with the photographs taken in the aftermath of the strikes. Um, and the uh, ATB market and the gas station show the remnants of BM-21 grad rockets. There was no military presence identified at the locations that were hit. And that's just what it comes down to. So in the long run, the commission ended up concluding that the Russian armed forces carried out another indiscriminate attack on the ATB market and the Oko gas station have likely also carried out um, the attack on the railway station all in Hurston City and failed to take precautions to verify the objects were not civilian. So these are um, these are the uh, the things that that the that they are reporting on and it's example after example and you know they've given us a few examples of I'm betting a whole lot more examples that they took um while they were there. Um, so yeah. And uh, now they also go on here to talk about attacks carried out on the Russian and uh, in, in the areas controlled by Russia. And <laughs> the thing, you know, the thing to basically point out here is, you know, knock down the door. Hey, Russia, um, you're saying that uh, Ukraine is doing these things. Uh, can we come and check that out? to uh, help you prove that really that's what it comes down to and uh, they get uh, of course it sent they have sent requests for information from both to both parties of the armed conflict it did not receive responses from the russian federation 
Two previous re requests for access to the Russian appointed authorities of the former DNR and LNR, um, of the so-called DNR and LNR, have um, remained unanswered. So, um, yeah, there is, according to media, then, so that's, that's one thing there. And then they go on to talk about um, a January 23, January 2023 attack that struck um, a hospital in Luhansk province, uh, leading to the death of 14 persons and the injury of many others. One institute from the of the Russian Federation informed the commission about the attack. It was reviewed with publicly available photographs and videos of the damage and confirmed with the satellite in imagery. Um, and uh, it appeared that there was damage to one wing of the hospital. Information available suggests that the hospital was functional at the time of the incident. The Ukrainian authorities informed the commission that they have opened a pre-trial investigation into the shelling. So Russia says, no, you can't look. They get whatever information they can, however they can. And Ukraine says, we're looking into that. And there's another report from not all that long ago where it's clear in a previous report that that they have recommended Ukraine make a change to something. And in this, in the newer report, they make note that, you know, we have noticed a stark improvement in, I think it was the conditions of uh, prisoners. It was conditions of prisoners in a specific prisoner prison in Lviv. And it had to do with two things. The, Portion size of food for prisoners and using physical exercise as punishment. And the note in the report was that those had greatly improved, which is what these reports should do, actually, in, in my opinion, is say, hey, you got a problem in this spot and um, you should make a change. And what I'm seeing here is that uh, they are making those changes. And, uh, and, and that, you know, and those are the things that we're seeing from Ukraine from these reports and what we're getting from Russia when it comes to these reports is crickets. Um, so the, basically the commission has been unable to proceed with investigations, uh, when it comes to things that have happened in the Russian controlled areas because of Russia's unwillingness to cooperate. And, uh, Echoes with what I said earlier, I think, right there. So then we go to the energy infrastructure. Do you want me to grab that one? Sure. Yeah, and, and this is an area that the commission is still investigating, so they haven't um, fully done their assessment here. But in their previous reports, as well as this one, um, they'd expressed concern at the impact of civilians from the large-scale waves of attacks on the energy infrastructure that the Russian armed forces started doing on October 10th, 2022, which is right at the beginning of the heating season. Um, and bear in mind, 
you know, that's impacted uh, the attacks hit electricity related installations, causing temporary outages, which sometimes affected millions of people, which in turn resulted in electricity, heating and water cuts. And bear in mind, and I know we talked about it, particularly back in October, November, December last year, that there is there are a lot of areas in Ukraine that are still reliant on shared heating. So basically you have electricity that allows you to do steam generation, which allows you to heat water pipe throughout an area. So they were going after the electricity grid, which impacted both the water, the hot water, and the heating capabilities as well. They noted that Kiev and Odessa were among the provinces that were particularly hit and that the two residents of Odessa that they interviewed reported recurrent power outages of up to three days during the winter. And we know there were many more, but this was the interviews that they had done. And due to the scarcity of power, at times electric supply was available during pre-established and limited periods of time. And if you recall back last year around this time, we would have folks like Oscar from Odessa call in and say, oh, I'm in my window where I have electricity, but I'm not sure how long it's going to last. You know, so she would talk to us for a little while and then she'd need to leave to go do the rest of, you know, basically you're left compressing a day's worth of activities that normally you can do at your leisure that had to be done while you still had power. Like bathing and eating and hygiene, you know, so the things that those are the areas that I expect this report to expand on or a separate report to be issued as they go further into that investigation. And I think we can only hope that Russia is not as aggressive in their attempts at that again this year. Go ahead, Gina. Yeah, I just wanted to to break out some specific things here, because sometimes we, we see this stuff and we don't think of what all the consequences are involved. And again, this gets into creating more of those conditions calculated to bring about the physical disruption, destruction of the group in whole or in part. Remember, because it doesn't have to be the whole group you're trying to take out. Um, just enough of a part of it. And the Genocide Convention doesn't set a minimum of numbers that you know, to make it qualify for that. But when you were, you know, mentioning, for example, the water supply, the electric supply, persons with disabilities and elderly people, these are two areas that I've covered in my journalism and in other areas, the social concerns of those communities. And it's so often, even in a society or a a place where you have, reasonable resources, even if it's not fully inclusive for, for persons with disability, it, it's far enough along that it can still allow a level of dignity and ease. For example, access to running water or bathrooms, even if bathrooms aren't fully, um, in the U.S., we would say American Disabilities Act or ADA compliant for, for getting in. Can you imagine being a person who has, for example, mobility issues, and you can't even get to a proper bathroom facility. You can't bathe. You can't brush your teeth. What if you need dialysis? 
and you don't have the electricity to run that equipment, you know, uh, electricity, how do you study? How do kids get an education if they don't have the electricity to be able to charge devices and, and have lights to study under? I mean, think of all the ways in which all of the consequences of attacking these things. I mean, if you're an older person and you, you know, you, you have a separate set of mobility issues and, and you don't even have, and maybe you're used to periods in your life where you had to kind of do without, or, you know, you grew up in a time where it was, you didn't have as many modern conveniences, but, but notwithstanding, you still had access to some basic things that are now being taken out. And again, I submit that Russia is doing this with full knowledge, deliberately, because they know what the impact is. They know what the long-term consequences are. They don't want Ukrainian kids to go to school. They don't care about Ukrainian kids because they don't have any problem killing them. They don't have any problem stealing them. They don't have any problem telling them that they don't have an identity as Ukrainians. They don't care about persons with disabilities. Their own country doesn't have the greatest record on this. They don't really care about anyone else's, you know, citizens that have disabilities. So all of these attacks on infrastructure have very profound impacts, even if not a single person is killed in that building. And, and you know, please, God, let no more people be killed. But even when an attack does not result in actual deaths or even by some miracle, severe injuries, it still stands to do a lot of damage, tremendous damage. What if you were a cancer patient in the midst of all of this? There are people who have terminal diseases and cancers and who are in the midst of this. And, and these attacks on, on infrastructure, just if they don't kill in the moment, they very much stand to kill in the future. You know, I just need to riff off of this for a second. Because... One of the things, you know, when we talk to people who are delivering humanitarian supplies to the recently newly liberated areas near the front lines and things like that, um, one of the biggest asks every single time is for adult diapers. Think about that, you know. That is one of the single biggest asks all the time is for adult diapers. And I hear, I've heard that more than I think for kids' diapers. You know, what is it you need? Oh, we need adult diapers. It's something they hand out a lot. Um, as somebody who has worked with people with disabilities, you know, age in and of itself can put you in need of using adult diapers, but people with disabilities may also need adult diapers. And I can go on and on and on and on. And, you know, let me just give my K kid an ex as an example, who lives on a ventilator, uses adult diapers, is fed by tube, but has to be fed at a very specific rate that is operated by a machine. Um, so put her in a position where she's run out of adult diapers. That's probably overcomable. She's 21, 22 maybe, sorry. And, um, but her ventilator stops. She can't breathe. 
she will die. Even if her ventilator stays on backup battery for a while or they figure out how to get that to work. Um, what about her feeding? Her feeding tube. Oh, wait, the food would have to be refrigerated too. Um, because, you know, you don't use the whole thing all at once. There's just a whole long list of things that would make make my friend's child die. And, you know, it, 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 these are the things that we don't think about. But the, where I wanted to start with that was adult diapers. Because it's one of the simpler, more basic things before you get into an extremely medic medically complicated adult. Um, and I don't know whose hand was up first. So, Nancy, you figure it out, please. Uh, go ahead, James. And then I do want to riff as well. And I think Gina does, too. Uh, I was just going to add in that the the um, fifth item in genocide is the um, measures intended to prevent births within the group. And I think that um, it, it isn't as direct as other forms of um, doing this, but destroying buildings, destroying the place where people can live has got to has got to do this. Right. It's got to um, make people rational people say or wonder at least, is this really a good time for us to have kids and conclude no? And so it, it seems to me, well, anyway, that's, that's said. So that's all I had. Actually, Gina, go ahead, because mine's going to be a more of a 30,000-foot a view item. Yeah, just to dovetail with all of that, what's the goal here? To stop the Ukrainian people from living, from flourishing, and also in the, in the moment to, to reduce and eliminate their dignity. You know, to say to people, we're going to take away the places where you get the most basic things in life, food, clothing, shelter, fuel, um, you know, facilities for running water, take away running water, take away, you know, to make people reliant on, on diapers, maybe at a place in life where they don't need them. You know, but but you have to use them because there's no running water where you're at. Again, it's all designed to humiliate, to to destroy the notion of being a Ukrainian and having a sovereign free land with guaranteed law, you know, rules based order and democratic freedoms so that the human flourishing can take place. That is what this is designed to do. That is exactly what this is designed to do. If Russia doesn't kill in the moment, it seeks to kill eventually, over time, the Ukrainian people. And that is genocide. Yep, exactly. One of the things, too, that, that I want to bring out in regards to the electricity and heating infrastructure is that, you know, while it's clear we've talked about examples where, you know, this building hadn't been used for a military purpose in decades, and that should be obvious. On the flip side, I find it, and I, at the time I found it so heinous that most of the electrical system and the district heating systems that are used in Ukraine are of Soviet era. You know, those types of things don't grow on trees. They're not replaced every day in any country. Um, and many of those were older items that the 
Soviet era knew well, which means the Russian government still had a lot of documentation on them and they were easy to locate and attack. So it was absolutely a direct terroristic assault on Ukraine intended to kill or subjugate populations of civilians. There's there's just no ifs, ands, or buts about that. And I'm because of that, I very much want to see how um, this commission writes up that area of reporting. I'll be very interested in that because you know, that is an area that very explicitly screams intent of civilian harm, no matter how I slice it, that that vicious intent um, was clearly and consistently demonstrated time over time in this area in particular. And with that, I shut the rest of the panel up. <laughs> That's my job. I usually do that. All right. Shall we move on to, um, we've thought of a lot of things that, that come with the power outages. And I think right now it's, it's something that's, that's hard to think about because um, we know it's coming. We know the attacks on the energy and infrastructure are coming. When they're going to happen, I'm not quite sure. They haven't happened yet. They started already in October last year. I can't remember the exact date. I want to say October 11th. Um, the Ministry of Defense did note it. I just don't remember which date it was. Um, but, you know, we also have not seen a very large scale missile attack on Ukraine for a while. And we know, we know why. We saw a huge drone attack last night. I'm pretty sure it was looking for air defense. Um, and, and you know, we know it's coming. We know what we we went through last year, and we know what will happen this year. Uh, I hope that Ukraine has, I know that Ukraine has um, put in a lot of improvements and has a lot more air defense than last year. And so I'm hoping that it goes better than last year. But I know it won't be perfect because Ukraine doesn't have enough of what it needs but it has more of what it needs and uh i hope that it goes better this year than it did last year so shall we talk about the dam um very brief brief information in this report regarding the dam and i think that there is a lot um that they are still going to say about the dam um, in the the taking out of the dam, and and they do they do note that they are going to further investigate the short and long term consequences. I think that that is I think that the subject of the dam is so big that at this point that they're keeping it brief um, because there are going to be there's going to be a lot about the dam. Um, of course, we've we've talked about the things um, we've talked about some things already, but of course, it's the fulfillment of basic human rights of the population in the affected area and triggered additional displacement. The flood caused loss of life, 
threat to health of the population. And according to the latest information received from the government of Ukraine in the aftermath of the events, 33 people died, 28 were injured, and over 40, 40 people are missing. And once again, the Russian Federation did not respond to the commission's questions regarding the impact of the breach on the areas which was under their control. I'm going to take a little detour here um, because we think of the human cost. We think of the, um, the physical cost. We think of the environmental cost. We think of the cost to the um, animal to just every, we think of a lot of things when it comes to this, but there's one very specific thing that I want to talk about is the cultural cost. There is a house there was a house that was a piece of art. It was a woman who in her later in her life, after she lost her husband and lost her daughter and her son was a drug addict where she started painting and she painted basically her entire house in beautiful, beautiful art. And that house was underwater and I am glad that there are pictures of what that house looked like, but, and I'm glad that it appears that part of that house survived, but part of that house has been destroyed. The destruction of the culture of Ukraine, which is, I believe, fits into one of the areas of genocide. Um, you know, I hope that's something that they also talk about is the destruction of the culture, um, because the destruction of the culture of Ukraine is something that is um, very evident um, and very clear, and and that is uh, that is that is just one of the examples that I think of. Um, I literally, if you Google um, "flooded painted house Ukraine," I think you will come up with images of the 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 um, the house, Gina. Yeah, in terms of culture as as part of the the damage of, of genocide, if you go on to um, getty.edu, there, there's a, a paper on cultural genocide and, and Lemkin, Raphael Lemkin, who coined the term genocide and who also um, you know developed the, the genocide convention, this was very much part of his thinking. Um, because he, he was fascinated by the Armenian genocide and, and how an entire people could be eradicated or someone could systematically attempt to eradicate them. So, um, you know, he, he was also a man of letters and, and, a, and a linguist or a philologist. So that's why he was able to come up with the term genocide. He put a tremendous amount of thought and effort and scholarship into into coming up with that word. So he was very attuned to language, to culture. And to paraphrase him, it, it, it's not just a question of destroying people, which of course it is, but it's destroying future generations, which are intimately tied to culture. Culture isn't just a single generation thing, right? Culture always talks about what happens across generations. What is our heritage? What is our human connection through time? So when you, when you wage genocide, 
if you're trying to exterminate a people, you want to exterminate their present expression of culture, whatever form that takes in the arts and literature and architecture, in, in religion, which is a part of culture and its, and its expression. And you're taking it away from the people and, and language, of course, which Ukraine's language has been suppressed multiple times throughout its history by, by Russia. And, and when I say Ukraine's history, I mean the history of the Ukrainian people as well as the history of the state. And you are also taking away that identity from the people in the moment and from their future generations, because even if they survive physically, if their culture doesn't survive, and this is something that Lemkin made clear, then they themselves have, have sustained an irreparable loss, the loss of that culture. And as a parallel, how many times have we seen that, for example, in the United States, among the various Native American, the indigenous cultures, that through policies, and I know it's a separate discussion, but insofar as we're talking about genocide here, we're talking about languages that were destroyed, cultural traditions that have been, you know, not eradicated, but severely restricted and, and have had to be rediscovered and to be to show some of the impact on this, some of my, my studies, my articles have covered um, various Native American schools in the United States. And, you know, unfortunately, because of the intergenerational trauma of what has been waged upon the, the indigenous peoples of this land, there is that loss of identity. And studies have shown, and I'm thinking of a couple of model schools in particular, they're actually Catholic schools, that have incorporated and very much worked to preserve and foster those, those cultural traditions. And as a result, it reduces depression and suicide risk among the Native American youth that they serve in these schools. So this has a profound impact on the present and the future. And again, even if people say, well, it's just a building, at least you survive physically. Well, yes, but you haven't completely survived if your culture has been taken from you. And culture is something that is so intimately tied. We have, we have human rights that, that transcend that, but we also have culture that is very much a part of us and that requires expression and, and, and deserves preservation and, and it deserves protections. So again, just to, to kind of think a little bit more about what's at stake here and not to just, not to somehow think that we've, not lost anything as much if, if we just talk about getting people to survive. There's much more to it than that. Yeah, and I just want to add one of the recent UN-Ukraine reports is on the post-disaster needs assessment after the Kohovka Dam disaster. And a large portion of that, of course, is for the reasons we've just described, preliminary in nature, um, but they're using... Um, consistently applied UN standards for the measurement of damages to the best of their abilities regarding the dam disaster. And they do have a section there that is dedicated to um, the costs of the loss of culture and what it's going to take for physical recovery of what they can. And so it's honestly, that report is a hundred pages of, of fairly dry reading, but it covers many salient points. And so I have added that as a link um, to the thread in the nest as well. Go ahead, Gina. 
Yeah, I just want to add a direct quote from Raphael Lemkin on this, um, because it's, I think it's said best in his, his own words. Generally speaking, genocide does not necessarily mean the immediate destruction of a nation. It is intended, rather, to signify a coordinated plan of different actions aimed at the destruction of essential foundations of the life of national groups with the aim of annihilating the groups themselves. The objectives of such a plan would be disintegration of the political and social institutions of culture, language, national feelings, religion, and the economic existence of national groups, and the destruction of the personal security, liberty, health, dignity, and even the lives of the individuals belonging to such groups. And that, have we not seen that? Think about just the last 20-some years of Putin's reign. Okay, have we not seen this in Ukraine? You could argue that Putin was waging genocide against Ukraine from the moment he rose to power. The, the nonsense rewriting of history, denying a Ukrainian identity that we are all, you know, this, this brotherhood of Slavs that he wants to promote. The, the, the meddling, the, the, even before 2014, you know, the, the inability to let Ukraine determine its own national destiny, its own destiny as a people, its own sovereignty, its own flourishing. He, he has worked at every turn to undermine that, at every single turn. And, and what's happening now is, is unfortunately a culmination and an acceleration of genocidal acts that he was setting up. For example, Sergei Somlemny, if, if you follow him, about a year ago, I think it was a year ago, he did an amazing thread on Stalin's, uh, uh, Putin's rehabilitation of Stalin. Well, Stalin you know, tried to destroy the Ukrainian people too. Why would you rehabilitate this figure, right? For what end? Because he was setting it up so that he could do what he's doing now, so that he could train his people to not regard Ukraine as a separate people, but to invalidate their culture, to invalidate their language, to invalidate their institutions, to invalidate their self-determination. Everything that he could do, he, he, try, he has been trying to do. And Lemkin's point here about genocide not being necessarily an immediate destruction of a nation, but intended rather to signify a coordinated plan of different actions aimed at that. Again, I'm no international lawyer, but I would definitely be trying to include as much of the pre-invasion stuff as I could in my dossier against Putin, because it didn't just start with 2014, and it didn't just start with February of 2022. This has been a long-standing plan. This is the man who thought that the Soviet Union's fall was one of the greatest geopolitical disasters, and who, who cannot get it in his head that these people have every single right to be their own nation. So we need to think longitudinally about this because, again, it's more, it's, it's more in line with what the, the, you know, with Raphael Lemkin and, and the um, crafters of the Genocide Convention, which was largely him, but I mean, of course, it went through some revisions, but with what the, the, found, the, um, the creators of the Genocide Convention had in mind, it's truer to that. And it's, it's a more... I think a, a, a more comprehensive and a stronger and a more realistic and faithful approach 
in, in investigating genocide and in preventing genocide. If we don't look at it in those terms, then we're not going to prevent it as well. If we don't look at it longitudinally, if we have to wait until the first shots are fired and the first blood is shed, we're already too late. So that needs to change in our view of how we prevent genocide, which is every much as part of that convention as it is to punish. And it's better to prevent than to punish, because by the time you get to punishing, lives have been lost already. And, and that's not acceptable. Yes, 100 percent. And uh, yeah, um, beyond. James, go ahead. Yes, I just wanted to chime in and say that uh, Plokey is full of good references about these sorts of plans and how, um, you know, they laid the seeds for taking Crimea long before they took it um, by making sure that Ukraine and other areas of Russia uh, or what was Russia were informed that, you know, whether or not their border was subject to change was whether or not they stayed within the Soviet system or the Russian system. And so, so you're absolutely right, Gina. There's just a ton of evidence that they've been at this a long time. It's not just a Putin thing. It really is the systematic, systematic attack by Russia and their leadership. I'll add one thing too, and I I uh, found one of the articles that uh, I'd been looking for. But if you guys recall, one of the things that I talked about back in June was the Crimean artifacts. That um, it, it is a trove of Crimean gold artifacts that had been on loan to an Amsterdam museum when the when Crimea was annexed by Russia in 2014 illegally. And Russia had been trying to get these treasures and these cultural heritage items from Crimea, from Ukraine, back in the Dutch court for quite some time. And in June of this year is when the Dutch appeals court confirmed that Ukraine has the legal control over that contested collection of artifacts. And, and again, you know, we say gold and treasure, but some of those items were, you know, from the fourth century BC and things that are irreplaceable to the culture of Ukraine. And so I, I included a link about that. But again, those are the types of things that we've seen consistent reports of Russia plundering museums and taking as much as they possibly can of Ukraine's culture back to Russia to deprive Ukrainians from that. And it's, you know, again, it's, it is a theft of far more than just the the value of the assets themselves. Go ahead, Gina. Yeah. And again, just to emphasize that Lemkin, and this is taken from Samantha Power's book, uh, A Problem from Hell, America in the Age of Genocide. If, if folks aren't familiar with that from listening to this space, I highly, highly recommend it because she just really masterfully looks at the history of the development of the term genocide, the genocide convention, and also 
you know, the various genocides prior to the current one in Ukraine, that how this has all played out, that she quotes Lemkin. And if you have the book, this is on page 53 of the latest paperback edition. But Lemkin felt that it wasn't just taking away culture from the culture itself, from the people affected, but that it actually betrays all of humankind because we're all poorer for the, the loss of those cultures. And this is, to, this is to quote him directly, again, Raphael Lemkin, who coined the word genocide. We can best understand this when we realized how impoverished our culture would be if the peoples doomed by Germany, such as the Jews, had not been permitted to create the Bible or to give birth to an Einstein, a Spinoza, if the Poles had not had the opportunity to give to the world a Copernicus, a Chopin, a Curie, the Czechs, a Hus, a Dvorak, the Greeks, a Plato and a Socrates, and, he says, the Russians, a Tolstoy and a Stostakovich. Now, bear in mind, Lemkin was was you know writing during the the early 20th century this was this was um you know but actually no i'm sorry this this was even after um the molotov ribbentrop pact was broken but um you know he he saw this as betraying all of humanity and bear in mind this man lost 49 of his relatives 49 to the shoah to the holocaust and in fact when finally the the genocide uh, convention was actually adopted, which was the first time that the United Nations had adopted a human rights treaty just to put a human fight on this, a human spin on this. Lemkin had to fight 15 years to get that to happen. And there were, you know, the press were, were ready to just, uh, you know, track him down and interview him. And he actually fled in the building to a room just, just to a, a, an assembly hall where he was in the dark weeping as if his heart would break. And he just asked to be left alone. And this was a man that had pestered and like journalists used to run from him because they were like, oh no, he's going to come after me and try to sell me on this genocide convention. And he was so, he, he was so overwhelmed. And finally it all broke and he was sobbing. And he actually got very ill that night and he ended up being admitted to a hospital in Paris and ended up staying there for three weeks. And he, he had said that that pact, that, that ability to get the genocide convention adopted by the United Nations, he called it, quote, an epitaph on his mother's grave and a recognition that she and many millions did not die in vain. I have enjoyed, you know what, I feel like there's some night, it's not going to be tonight, it's not going to be next week, there's some night that we need to just cover Lemkin's life. Actually, it would probably end up being more than one night. You know, this, this whole idea started out about understanding genocide in Ukraine. And we started down a road with understanding what genocide is by looking at some of the fact sheets um, from the UN and, and, you know, what defines genocide, what are all the parts of the genocide convention, you know, and we've looked at all of these different UN reports and new lines reports of examples of genocide that are happening in Ukraine and, 
and and how it how it all is fitting together. But the more more and more that I think about this, it's it's not in any way abandoning understanding genocide in Ukraine, but I think understanding how the word genocide came into being is extremely important to understanding genocide as a whole. You can't understand genocide in Ukraine unless you understand the history of genocide and where it came from. And the root of that discovery is talking about Lemkin and who he was in his fight for um, for the genocide convention with the UN and, uh, and, and what that entire journey was like to be able to understand that is extremely, um, important. Um, so that's just something that, you know, we're not obviously not going to get through this report this week. Um, so we'll probably do the rest of it next week, but, um, but I think we need to talk about, um, if we want to talk about, uh, understanding who Lumpkin was, so that we can understand the history of genocide even better. Gina, go ahead. No, absolutely. I could not agree more because it, this was born out of, this wasn't a theoretical for Lemkin by any stretch of the imagination, even though his fascination with this began when he was a child before Nazi Germany came to power. Still, it was literally battle proven in his life. And he suffered tremendously. He suffered tremendously to make this happen. And he fought a lot of opposition to make this happen. And then when he finally got it ratified, the next hard part came about with trying to get the United States, whom he had hoped would be one of the early adopters. And it took us until the Reagan administration to adopt it. And we can thank then Senator William Proxmire, who basically took up the standard in the U.S. So I think that knowing these stories brings us back to what we were, why we needed this convention in the first place. And I still, I wish if that person is listening, please come up into the space and, and say it again, because one morning someone just said it so well in the space about how after World War II, after all of its horrors, there was a true hunger for peace that led to the creation of the United Nations and a commitment from the world to a rules-based order. And we need to recapture that. We need to rediscover that. We need to get away from this real politic. And as long as my economy and my country works out, I don't really care what happens. I'm more interested in a good trade partner, an investment partner, and human rights can take a backseat to that because that's no way to run any type of human and that's no way to run any type of human organization, whether it's a company, whether it's a country, whether it's a global community. And, and we, we can none of us afford to to think and live along those lines anymore. We need to recapture what's really at stake. And looking at Lemkin's life is an incredible window to doing that. Another book in the meantime, until we get to that night, if you want to read a great book about it, not just what Samantha Power has written in her in the first few chapters of her book, which is A Problem from Hell, American Age of Genocide, but East West Street by Philippe Sand, the, the British human rights lawyer. Fantastic narrative, a very interesting read. Both of these books are easy and interesting to, I don't want to say easy, but I mean that they, they're very readable. They're not dry. They're very, very engaging and very, very informative. That's another great book. 
to get an insight into Lemkin's life because Philippe Sands really, really dug in and brought that man to life. He's a very vibrant character, but he he's actually, I think, heroic. <laughs> he annoyed a lot of people in his life, not because he was intentionally annoying, but because he was so passionate and consumed to the point of sickness to make sure that this this um that this great contribution to humanity, the articulation of a word known as genocide, to give us a name for the crime that had no name and to give us a convention or to at least, you know, framework out that convention that we all these years later have to do everything in our power, whether it's calling our elected officials, tuning into Maria, reading these reports, spreading the word among family and friends of what is at stake, because I think it would be a betrayal of all those who have ever died in any genocide anywhere, if we did not do that. Yes. And I think that uh, that is something to put a good bow on this evening. It might be a good place to, to, um, to pause and uh, say that we will see you guys again next week. Um, I thank you all for, for, for joining us tonight and, uh, and 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 bringing that in we are going to um, pick up on page eight out of 18 next week um with uh section b personal integrity violations and uh that will be uh probably a little bit uh, more intense because it gets into uh some very very um it gets into intense descriptions of of what has happened um and and like i always say we can't hide from anything we cannot um somebody has to know it and i'm more than willing to be a person who knows it. i'm more than willing to be a person who sees it because then i can pass that on to somebody else um so i just want to thank james and for every child and everybody who's contributed tonight and more than anything i want to thank nancy and gina for taking this Nancy for having the idea for this journey and Gina I dragged you along I think on this journey it didn't take much all it took was hey Gina it's like I'm there and she has been there every step of the way and <laughs> and so um thank you both so much um uh, Gina just go to you for for a minute before and then we'll go to nancy and then we'll uh do co-host swaps but uh thank you again very much for tonight no thank you all and as i said always say we came together for a tragic reason which was the full-scale invasion of ukraine but i do believe that we learn and we strengthen each other and we i personally feel very blessed to be able to in some very small way support ukraine because I feel it's made me a better and more informed person. And it's really caused me to appreciate um, just the human dignity, human freedom. Uh, Ukraine has just kind of inspired me. It continues to inspire me every day. And I'm just grateful for this opportunity to, as I said, discuss this and, and raise awareness and learn above all, learn so much. And to all those in the audience who are of Ukraine, I, I, you know, extend my heartfelt prayers. I, I can't wait to go back to Ukraine. I dearly love the Ukrainians in my life. And Slava Ukraine. Herob Slava. Slava. Nancy? Yeah, and I, again, I just echo everyone's thanks for working with us through 
this full series, which has just been an absolute delight due to everyone's active participation and to Prince and Gina for all of their knowledge, insights, and thoughtfulness. And I've, I'm the, the person who manages the threads now. Woohoo! I'm one of those geeks. And um, just in follow-up, I did add one more link um, to, and thank you to one of our wonderful contributors behind scenes um, who passed a link to um, Ole Katsuyuba's Facebook um, post from January where he had talked about the artifacts that Russia stole from the Kherson museums. And it's, it's worth a read. It, I had forgotten that that was that substantial as far as the overall theft from Russia of so many um, priceless artifacts and pieces of art um, that are so important to Ukraine's cultural heritage and that international art experts say the plunder may be the single biggest collective art heist since the Nazis pillaged Europe in World War II. And for those of you who have seen movies about attempts to recover those and, and even today, um, there is there are still active attempts to recover some of those lost um, family heir, heirlooms, museum pieces, and things like that. That's exactly what Russia has done to Ukraine as well. So um, lest we forget. Thanks. Thank you all. And uh, James, um, thanks for joining in the conversation and uh, you have added so much over over many weeks um, and ever for every child also you have too. Um, and uh, we will continue this journey and see where it takes us. Um, I, I just, uh, you know, I think it, it was intended to start out as just a few weeks, but boy, howdy, has it morphed. And uh, I appreciate um, the commitment, Gina, and the commitment, Nancy, and uh, James for, for uh, really, man, you know, if, uh, the, if there's some subject that comes up regarding genocide, on the space and I don't have uh, a chance. I am not in a position where I can come up and talk at the moment, but I see James pop up. I breathe a big, huge sigh of relief because I know James will be able to take care of it very well. And uh, so, yeah. So again, thank you all for this evening and uh, we will see you for understanding genocide again tomorrow night. Uh, not tomorrow night, I'm sorry. Next Friday night, not tomorrow night. <laughs> Tomorrow night is uh, Crime and Punishment, SBU. Uh, so we will talk about catching some of these people that direct the, the, uh, the explosions and the missiles and uh, other things that Ukraine is doing to get uh, corruption out of their country. But uh, next Friday night, we will talk about understanding genocide again. And uh, so thank you, guys. I appreciate it. And... Uh, at times, it's hard to say goodbye, but uh, we know that Nancy needs to go to bed and Gina needs to go to bed. And I need to stick around for a few more hours. Then I can have dinner and do a bunch of reading, and then I can go to bed. <laughs> and I need to hop down so that I can uh, help grace y'all with Will's presence. He'll be up shortly, and I thank everyone as well. <laughs>